Hey, can we just give the Lord a hand on both campuses? I want to welcome everyone that is joining us this morning, uh, whether you're on the Edgewood campus or you're joining us online, we're glad to have you. Uh, those of you that are on the Wills Point campus, uh, we're glad to have you. And uh, uh, today we are beginning a uh, series through the book of Romans. Uh, we're going to be uh, sharing uh, the words of a guy named Paul as he reveals the righteousness of God. And this book uh, is is one that stands alone on its own. It's a, it's a book that um, is much different than the other epistles or the letters that Paul wrote because all the other ones were very personal. They were very personal in the way that he wrote uh, specifically to Philippi and uh, to Colossae and to Ephesus and places that he had been and people he had met. Uh, but as he writes this book uh, here in uh, Romans, this is a group of people that he had never met. And so it's not as personal uh, in, in that sense, but it is very practical and it really is the bedrock of the Christian faith. Um, it is a book that changed many of people's lives. Uh, Augustine in 386 was hearing some kids play. Uh, it led him to go and read the book of Romans through a scroll. And in 386, Augustine came to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of reading through Romans 13. I just said that Martin Luther also uh, came to know Christ because of the reading of Romans. It is said that uh, John Wesley, uh, on a night in the 1700s, in 1738 in London, he was hearing a commentary of Luther, and it was there as he was hearing this commentary unfold that John Wesley gave his life to Christ as a result of coming to uh, face Romans head on. Uh, Romans is, uh, is just a book that is in some ways the compendium of our faith. Uh, matter of fact, uh, Martin Luther says this, it is the chief part of the New Testament and it is the perfect gospel, it is the absolute epitome of the gospel. Samuel Coleridge, uh, which was an English poet and a literary uh, critic, he said this, the most profound work in existence. And Frederick Godet, uh, 1900 uh, Swiss uh, theologian, he said this, the cathedral of the Christian faith. Uh, that is what Romans is. It is a compendium of truth. Uh, it is written by a, a guy named Paul, and which uh, we will identify here in a few moments as Saul. And it was written around uh, 57 to 58 AD. Um, Paul was uh, likely in Corinth where uh, he had really kind of been uh, hanging out there for a handful of years. And while he was there uh, during about a three-year stretch, Paul wrote back to this church in Rome, a, Rome, a Roman church that was established uh, from what we know in Ephesians or uh, Acts chapter 2 uh, in, in the days of Pentecost. There were likely some believers that were in Rome that took the word back and started a local church. It, there was not an apostolic church there. There wasn't anybody really that was foundational in starting it that we know of. But what we do know is that Paul longed to see them. He wanted to be there in person, though he had never been. Um, and he gives them this incredible book. And if you have uh, your Bible, I uh, would love for you to turn there to Romans chapter 1. We're going to dive in in verses 1, uh, and we're going to work through verse 7. Uh, now, real quickly, I just want to kind of give you this exhortation uh, that if you have a Bible, like a, a physical Bible, okay, um, I would encourage you to bring it. And, and here's why. Uh, one, that you, as we dive through the book of Romans, we're going to be here for roughly 38 to 40 weeks. Uh, we're going to do a deep dive through the book. Uh, and uh, what's really cool about that is that as you bring notes and you mark up and you study it for yourself and you read a handful of verses each week, 
week. You can make those notes in, your, in the Bible, and then you can give this Bible at some point to your kiddos or to your grandkids. So you, as you use the knowledge you're learning, you can give that away. And as we uh, work through the book of Romans, uh, here's what you need to realize. It's organized really in, in five sections. And uh, when we look at these five sections, they kind, of, they kind of outline who we are in the Christian faith. And so if it's a compendium of all that God has for us and it's the bedrock of our faith, you should see how it's laid out. And so the verses, or I'm sorry, not verses, but chapters one through three, here's what Paul's re- revealing. He's revealing the condemnation of man. He is showing man's depravity. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, there is not one righteous, not even one. In verse uh, 23, that same chapter, he says, we're all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And so what he's doing is he's showing us that we are a condemned man. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. There is nothing righteous about us. But he doesn't stop there. In verse, uh, chapters 4 and 5, he talks about how man can be justified. And so he gives you the condemnation of man in the first three chapters. In chapters 4 and 5, he gives you The justification of man. Justification is just as if you've never sinned. So it means that man can be made right with God even though he's condemned. So we are sinners, but we can be justified in Christ. That's chapters 4 and 5. Then you get to chapters 6 through 8 and you hear about the sanctification of a believer. Sanctification is a really big word for growth or maturity. So we are to grow up in Christ. We are to become mature, lacking in nothing, as Paul would write to the church in Ephesus in chapter 4. And so as we think about maturity, we think about sanctification. It's how we grow up to be all that God wants. In chapters 9 through 11, you see God's vindication. Uh, vindication, namely against the Jews. That the Jews, um, even though they are God's, uh, the apple of his eye, that they, are, they still are going to be, in a sense, um, the vindication of God. And God is going to uh, vindicate his, his own name to them. And he's going to use the Gentiles to, in some ways, reach the Jewish people. And God lays that out. And then when you get to chapter 12 of Romans, you get this incredible chapter about what it looks like for us to no longer be conformed to the patterns of the world, but to be transformed, our minds renewed, our hearts changed, that we are not conformed to the patterns of this world. And you, have, you get this chapter that begins for really the rest of the book to chapter 16, which is the application of the believer. And when, when we get to that point, we learn what it looks like to have, have a relationship with God, how we relate to him on a daily basis, what it looks like, how it impacts our lives together, how we relate to one another in the church, outside of the church, even around government. And namely, Paul's writing to the church and they're dealing with the Roman government. And there's a whole lot there. And so that's the book. You get condemnation, justification, sanctification, vindication, and then application. And that's what we're going to start with today. We're going to start with the beginning of Romans chapter 1. So let's read verses 1 through 7 together. If you have your Bibles, uh, if you haven't quite found it yet, it's the sixth book in the New Testament. So you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Those are the Gospels that tell us about the life of Jesus. Then once you get to Acts, that's the early church. And then Romans is the first letter of Paul organized, but not the first letter written. And so just important to know that. And here's what it says. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience 
of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray and then we're going to dive into chapter 1, verse 1. Father in heaven, we need your help. I uh, pray, Lord, that even as I communicate uh, the word of God, I pray, Lord, that you uh, would would use this to bring about exhortation in our hearts, to remind us of your faithfulness and your steadfast love. And I pray, Lord, most of all, that you would remind us that you are a God of great grace and mercy. And Lord, you show that even through the life of Paul. We thank you, Lord, for his faithfulness, and we thank you, Lord, for who he came to be. But it was only because of the mercy and the grace of our Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. So verse one, it says, Paul. Uh, And and I'll tell you, we can't go any further without understanding who this man was. Paul uh, was originally in the New Testament and a man named Saul. Uh, We know a lot about him uh, because of the text. And uh, what you'd know is, is that Paul was born in the area of Tarsus, which is modern day Turkey, uh, in uh, Cilicia is where he was. And as he was born in Tarsus, he would grow up in a Jewish home. He would be a Roman citizen. Uh, That would help him and be an advantage to him later on when he was beaten and persecuted uh, by uh, the Romans. But what you would see is though he was a Roman citizen and a Jew, he would likely later move to Jerusalem and he would do that in order to learn under some of the greatest rabbis of the day. Now we know that Paul uh, learned under uh, Rabbi Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is a guy that we would see in the scriptures. And he was one of the chief and leading rulers of the, of, of the Pharisees. He was a man that sat on the council and oftentimes was a man that made many of uh, the, the ruling decisions. Gamaliel was a guy who would take Saul and he would teach him all about the Old Testament. Uh, he would teach him about um, the, the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Paul would become a learned man in the prophets. He would become a learned man in the Psalms. Uh, he would become uh, learned in all of the Judaistic traditions, and he would master Jewish history. Paul was a guy um, who, at this point in his life, was taking on the name Saul. He'd learned to dissect the scriptures according to Acts chapter 22. That was what he did. Paul himself would say that he was the chief uh, of all Israelites, that he, he was in, in many ways the Hebrew of Hebrews. In uh, 2 Corinthians 11, he would say that he was a Hebrew, uh, that he was a, uh, not only an Israelite, but he came from the tribe of Benjamin. So he was a Benjamite. He descended from uh, Abraham. He was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. He became a lawyer, a zealot. He was very secure in who he was. And really what he made his life mission to do would be a terrorist of the local church. And so Saul was a man who was not only learned under Gamaliel, not only was an Israelite, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Benjamite, a Pharisee, but he made it his quest in life to kill anyone that was a part of the way. If I could put it in your head, he was a zealot and a terrorist of the church. That was his goal. His mind and his mission was to honor God in such a way that he would drag out, stomp out, and do anything he can to persecute those people that called themselves followers of the way. 
Matter of fact, uh, one of the first times that you see him in Acts um, is at the stoning of a guy named Stephen. Stephen was a, an early church member and he was a, a guy who was prominent in preaching uh, God's word and preaching to other people. And you see him in Acts chapter 7 in many ways tell a, a great n- number of Jewish, believer, uh, Jewish uh, and Judaistic type believers, Pharisees, possibly even came behind, uh, before the council of the Sanhedrin. He preached a message to them and he tells them about their foundation, about where they began and about where they came from. And he gets to the point where he says, and what you've done is you've killed the, the Messiah. You've killed the very one who could set you free. And at that point, the council uh, would utter that he was a blasphemer and that he should be killed. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 7, um, verses 54 through 60. Um, if you want to go to the book of Acts, you're just going to turn left one book and then you'll go to chapter seven. We'll put it for you up on the screen. This is what it says in chapter seven. We'll finish through uh, verse or chapter eight, verses three. It says, now when they heard, meaning the council, uh, these things that Stephen said, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, uh, meaning Stephen, he was full of the Holy Spirit and he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And I don't know about you, but that's an amazing thing to think about Stephen's obedience and that God um, and his son Jesus are, are standing on his behalf in a sense. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. So when he says, I see God, uh, and I see the glory of God, and I see Jesus standing. They rushed at him, they mobbed him, they drug him out of the city, and they begin to stone him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named, and everybody say it with me, Saul. Here he is. You see a young man, a, a, a leader in Jerusalem, rising in rank, studied under Gamaliel, and one of the first mentions of him is you see clothes being cast at his feet. Verse 59 says, And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen's words remind us of the words of Jesus even on the cross. You, you see this idea of a man who is faithful and and. And you see his devotion to God as he would preach to people who would not hear of it. They kill him. They lay his clothes at Saul's feet. But look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. Saul most likely probably didn't pick up a stone, but he was certainly there. He was certainly there to, to make a way uh, and to make waves within the local church. It goes on and it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And look at verse 3. But Saul. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women, and he committed them to prison. 
When you see that word there in the Greek, ravaging, um, it just is the word uh, lumonomai, which literally means to destroy, to utterly ruin. It would be as if you were running through a garden and you were just tearing up everything that had taken roots and been planted. To be ravaged means to be totally destroyed. And that was Saul's mission. He was learned in the scriptures. He was devout to God. He was Hasidic, a Hasid, a loyal Jew to God. But he was a zealot and a terrorist to anyone who proclaimed anything about the message of this guy named Jesus. And even as uh, he would gather up people and he would take them back to Jerusalem to be charged or to be killed or to be murdered, that was his life's mission, to do these things, to instruct people, to make sure they were living in Uh, according to the law, according to the Jewish tradition. But then you would come across Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, you would see what Paul meant when he said this in Romans 1. Because Romans 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. So when he says a servant there, he uses the word doulos, which literally means I am not my own master. Now, before he was his own master, he was uh, a, a Jew, he was a lawyer, he was a Pharisee, he was the master of his own domain. But here it says, Paul, and a, a servant of Christ Jesus, a slave to who? Jesus. So where's the change? What happened? He was Saul. Now, in this letter, he's Paul. What well, happened in Acts chapter 9? We're just going to look at verses 3 through 5, uh, and I'll kind of expound a little bit on it. Uh, really verses one and two tell us that Paul was gathering up a group of people. He was persecuting. He was taking them back to Jerusalem to be punished. And it says in verse three, now as he went on his way, going towards Jerusalem, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Look at his response. Who are you? Who are you, master? Who, who, who is this that's speaking to me? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And though his eyes were open, Acts chapter 9 tells us that he was struck blind. He was led to Ananias. And we know that he was converted to Christ Jesus that day. And what he would do is he would be taught by the Lord himself and he would become an apostolic work of God in his life, which is why he says, Paul, a slave of Christ, called to be an apostle. He goes on and says, this is the last part of verse one, set apart for the gospel of God. So here it is, this terrorist, this guy who was strict in the law, a hasid, a loyal Jew, has now met Jesus uh, after persecuting him and his people. He is now called to an apostolic work, being converted to Christ. Paul says, I am set apart for the gospel of God. What is the gospel of God? Well, Paul outlines what that is. And I'm glad that we have the letter that he writes to Timothy. The very first letter that he writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, he writes to Timothy in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. First uh, Timothy is going to be back to your right. You're going to come across several T's. And when you get there, you're going to have first and second Timothy. And if you get to Titus, you've gone too far. But first Timothy chapter one, look at verse 12. It says, I thank him who has given me strength. And then he tells us who Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me 
faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which Paul says, which I am of the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Friends, this is what Paul is saying. He goes, my name was Saul. I grew up under Gamaliel. I was strict. I observed the law and I killed people because I was so zealous for God. I did all of it because I didn't know better. I was ignorant. I was foolish. My heart was darkened. And then I met Jesus himself. He opened my eyes. I was blind, but now I see. And because I see, I realize that I am of the most, the foremost of all sinners. My heart was wretched. I was, I was confused. And because of God's great love and his mercy, because I was the foremost, God showed his great grace, his great love. He lavished on me and it just proves that he'll lavish it on you too. What Paul is saying is, is I blasphemed Christ, but now I am a believer of Christ. I was a murderer, but now I'm a member of the household of God. I was a persecutor, but now I'm an ambassador. I was a zealot, but now I have a zeal for Christ. That's Paul's mission. He says, I am a servant of God. My name is no longer Saul. I'm no longer identified by what I did, but what Christ has done in me, which is the incredible story of Tiffany Page, which you saw earlier. I'm no longer identified by my sin, by my foolishness, by the things that I did. I'm now identified as a daughter of God. I can be a part of the household of faith. And so here's the good news of Romans chapter one. Though you and I are condemned in our sin, you and I also have the hope that Paul gives us. And that is this, that just as he is set apart, you too can be. And no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, there's a God in heaven who loves you and he sent his son Jesus for you. Amen. And that's why we gather. And that's why we remind each other the very things that Paul reminded us of and why he wrote to the church of Rome. And in chapter 1 verse 2, he says, All of this which he, meaning God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. What, in essence, Paul is saying is he goes, This is not something that I made up. This isn't something that, that hasn't been consistent. He, as a learned Jew, is basically saying everything that, that we have in Christ Jesus is really from the Jewish orthodoxy. It is really where it began. This is God's plan from the very beginning. This isn't something that I made up. This was what I couldn't see because my heart was darkened and because I didn't understand the mystery that was being revealed to me. He goes, I missed what the prophets had said and what the Holy Scriptures contained. And so in verse two, he just tells us all of this is consistent from the beginning. And what he does is he's going to tell us 
through the lens of Romans, all that he's learned throughout the Old Testament. In 74 different times, Paul is going to quote Old Testament writers, many of which we'll see clearly in a lot of Isaiah, 74 times to show us that God had all this promise beforehand. After all, John chapter one says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That means that God is revealing himself as he has from the beginning and he would do it through the Jewish people and he would raise up the law and he would give them prophets. Matter of fact, Paul goes on. He just tells his brothers and sisters later in Rome, uh, in Romans chapter nine, what what he's really meaning here. And in Romans chapter nine, verses three through five, look what it says. For I... I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Basically, he goes, I know you don't understand, and I wish that I could be where I was so that you could understand. I would trade places with you to help you understand what I now know. In verse 4, he says, They are Israelites, and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What Paul is saying is this, God has made it so clear. He goes, he gave you not only the promises from Abraham of land and people and blessing, but he goes, he goes further and he gives you his word. And his word would come through the law. The law would point you to Christ. It would reveal your wretchedness. It would reveal your need for God. And the law would be imparted to you. And when you wouldn't listen to God, he goes, I, he gave you kings. And when you wouldn't listen to kings, he gave you prophets. Not because you needed kings and prophets, but because you wouldn't listen to the true king and the true prophets. And so he gave you king and the prophets and he gave you everything. He gave you his glory, the Shekinah glory of, the, of, of himself in the tabernacle later in the temple. He would give you the covenants. He would give you everything you needed. You could worship him. You could adore him. You could enjoy him, but yet you didn't. And so he even gave you the Christ, the very essence of God himself. And you rejected him too. And he goes, but don't confuse this. The prophets... And the Holy Scriptures have pointed to him all along. It was something that even in John chapter 3, Nicodemus couldn't wrap his head around. Why? Because of the mystery being revealed. God revealing himself to dead man, wanting to make them alive. And he would do so if you would simply see Jesus. That's why he says in verse 3, It's concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And here's what he does. He goes, all of this happens, not just because the prophet spoke about it, not just because the law pointed us to it, but it all happens because the one, the son, the one who descended from David came. And he was resurrected. And what he does here in verses three and four is he shows you the divinity of Christ, but also the humanity of Christ. So what he does, he goes, he descended from David according to the flesh. He was born in the lineage of David. Matthew tells us that. He goes, but not only do you have that, he goes, you also got his divinity, the resurrection from the dead. And so what you see is this, as the Hebrews writer in chapter four, verse 15 would tell us, we have a, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. Why? He was tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. He's the Messiah. So he understood what it was like to be tormented and tempted. He understood what it was like to suffer and to have pain and to embrace tears. 
But yet in his humanity, though he was tempted, he never sinned. And that's why you would see his divinity at the resurrection, that the glory of God really showed himself most fully when he overcame death, sin, and the grave through the resurrection. What makes Jesus supreme is that he could do what only he could do, and that is overcome death. And he does that not in his humanity, but in his divinity. And Paul shows you clearly who Jesus is. He lays that out for the church of Rome. And he establishes himself in that way. And so he goes, it's through the Son that this happens. It is through the Son, look at verse 5, that we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong Christ. So here Paul goes, listen, because of what I know and because of what I have experienced and because of the goodness of God, he goes, he has appointed me to his service. I am a slave to Jesus. He is my master. He is my king. He is my shepherd. And it is for him that I live. And Paul says, I received grace and I received a task. So he shows you the grace he received through Jesus Christ, which means though he is a sinner and he deserved Uh, To live without the mercy of God, he receives the mercy of God just like you and I can, which is incredible news. But he goes, but when I receive the mercy of God, I have a task. I have have an appointment. I have a job to do. Friends, we are no different. And so Paul's appointment, what was his his job? What was he to do? In verse 5, he says, I am to be obedient for the sake of Christ, his name among all the nations. Friends, I don't know why you're here today. But can I just implore you, encourage you, remind you, the only reason that you do what you do is for the sake of Christ among the nations. That's it. That's the only reason we live is to make him known throughout the world. I often say the only reason I exist is to make God famous. And that is why you and I are here. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure many of us need to be admonished in our walk with Jesus today. I'm sure some of us need to be exhorted and encouraged in our walk with Jesus today. Many of us need to be reminded of our walk with Jesus today. But can I just tell you the only reason you have a walk with Jesus is to make Jesus known. And Paul says that's why the mystery was revealed. is so that he would be known among the nations. I received his grace so that I could make his grace known through the task of proclaiming him among the nations. If you remember uh, the great Psalm 23, David penned it, um, where he just says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, li- he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And then look at the latter part of that. And he leads me in paths of righteousness for whose namesake? His name. Man, that's the key. That's the reason you breathe. That's the reason we have our being. That's the reason that God imparted his mystery to us. It's the reason that he wants your life. It's so that you would make him known, his righteousness known, for his namesake. Friends, I have no problem making a name for myself. But the problem is, is that I'm corrupt. And when I make a name for myself, it's going to be like the Tower of Babel. It's going to fall apart and I'm going to be cursed. The reality is, is that I have no reason to make anything known myself. But I could even proclaim what Paul would proclaim about himself. I am the chief, the foremost of sinners, saved by the glorious grace of God to make him known, to his righteousness be proclaimed among the nations. That's why we live. Uh, The great theologian William Barclay says this, the law lays down what a man must do, but the gospel lays down what God has done. So if I just gather you in here to tell you what you should go and do, I'm just trying to set you up for failure because the reality is what you must do, you're going to fail to do. 
And so it's all about what God has done for you. That's the gospel. The gospel is, is God gave you great grace. He lavished his love upon you for his namesake. He calls you children for his namesake. An heir, an ambassador for his namesake. Friends, I don't know about you, but man, I'm tired of living among a day and age, even among our churches where it's all about us. Amen. From our preferences to our desires. Hey, what if it's all about his namesake? That's what he says. And in verse 7, he tells us who he's writing to. Look at it. He says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Paul writes these things to a group of people he'd never met. And listen, there were a lot of different things circulating in that day and age about whether Paul really wanted to go to Rome. And here's the reality is, is that people would say, you know what, it's easy to go to Philippi. Or you know what, you can go to Corinth and you can, uh, you can compete against the Grecian gods and, and you can make people known there. You can go to Colossae and you can share the love of God there. And you can go to Thessalonica and, you know, that's not that difficult. But Paul, I don't think you want to go to Rome because Rome is the epicenter. It's, the, it's literally the mark of humanity. And not only that, you're going to compete not only with the epicenter of humanity, but you're going to compete with the Roman government. I don't think you have it in you to face Caesar or the Epicureans. I'm not sure that you have it in you. I don't know that you've got that strength. And so there was a lot of challenges around that, whether or not Paul really wanted to go to Rome. And here's what Paul says. Listen, I want to come to Rome. I can't wait to see you. But until then, I'm going to give you everything. And after 20 years of ministry, he writes this book, to this letter to the church of Rome. And he says, you're loved. You're saints. Grace and peace. I can't wait to see you. And he would see them. And it wouldn't all be necessarily the way he would long to. But listen, he's going to find a home in Rome. And he's going to be in prison. And it's there that he's going to continue to be a gospel witness. But the only way that happens is if you realize that, that his life was not his own. Why? Because that day on the road of Damascus, he became a slave to Jesus Christ. And friends, I don't know what road you met Jesus on. The road of despair, the road of addiction, the road of an affair, the road of going to church and not understanding all that there was. Whatever road you met him, God calls us out of darkness and into the glorious light of Jesus so that we can make him known. Friends, today, whatever we do, as Paul would write to the church of Colossae in chapter 3, Whatever we do, whether in word or deed, let's do it all for the glory of our great God, for his namesake and not our own. And so friends, what a great week we have being able to know Jesus and make him known. Just as Paul said to the church in Rome, grace and peace to you. And so with grace and peace, I leave you today saying, hey, go be the church. And go be all that God's called you to be. Let me pray for us before we sing together. Father in heaven, you are our cornerstone. You are the righteous one who is slain on our behalf. You are the perfect lamb of God. You identified with us in our weakness. You were tempted, but yet you never sinned. And you showed and vindicated yourself through the power of the resurrection. You overcame sin, death, and the grave. And you made a pathway for your righteousness to be made known in our lives that we could experience the forgiveness and the redemption of sin and we could walk in a new life with Christ. And so Lord, I pray that you would change us from the inside out and I pray that everything we do 
would simply be to make you known among the nations, just as Paul made him, his message clear that glory would be to you among all the nations. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.